The following podcast contains spoilers. We strongly recommend you watch the episode of The Americans We're Discussing before you listen to the podcast. New episodes air Wednesdays at 10 p.m. on FX. Elizabeth, for us, and it's complicated to say because we've seen all these horrible things she's done over the years, but we've never thought of her as a bad person. We've always thought of her as a person with a good heart and a good soul who's trying to do the job she's supposed to do. Welcome to the Americans podcast for the sixth and final season. I'm June Thomas, managing producer of Slate Podcasts and your host for the series which goes behind the scenes of the show. Today, we'll talk with Brandon J. Dearden, who plays Special Agent Dennis Aderholt, Costa Ronin, who plays Oleg Burov, spycraft expert H. Keith Melton and director Chris Long. But first, let's hear from showrunners Joe Weisberg and Joel Fields, who also wrote this, the penultimate episode of the series, Jennings Elizabeth. Today, I'm in genetically enhanced Gowanus with Joe Weisberg. Hi, June. Let's let's hope it's genetically enhanced. <laughs> and Joel Fields. Hello, Joel. Great to see you, June. The opening of this episode features a database search. This feels like an important moment in... Uh, spy history or in chase history or something like that it is significant right uh yeah as we often say on this podcast a tremendous amount of research with our consultant keith melton went into what the fbi in 1987 would have had in their databases and what they would have found and uh of course is often the case it turns up a big nothing yeah. but that's uh that's important in its own right it feels odd that in this episode elizabeth is protecting nestorenko protect is a word that Claudia used in the previous episode is something that I think Elizabeth has really done with Paige thus far this season. Is this a new Elizabeth? Elizabeth hasn't really been a protector, especially not of somebody who is not of her tribe in a sense. There's been a lot of transformation for Elizabeth this season. And it's transformation that comes in part out of the story, but in largest part out of the marriage and out of all of the conflicts and challenges that have emerged through the years of the marriage, but really heightened over the course of this season. Everything that's happened between Philip and Elizabeth has led to this. That's what marriage will do to you. You start out a loyal KGB operative and uh, you're forced to go into a fake marriage with your partner. And then many years later, suddenly you find yourself protecting someone who you had been told to kill. And you're asking yourself, how the hell did I get here? <laughs> we get some Elizabeth flashbacks to her childhood in this episode. Why now? And what do they mean? I'm always puzzled by flashbacks. I wouldn't say her childhood, but her, you know, her, her right. training and, yeah. and, and, and early, early days in her kind of KGB indoctrination and training. And, uh, you know, for us, that was a, a, a subtle but important story about a kind of a character change that was somewhat transformative for her, you know, about how as she's going through what she's going through in this episode, there were these moments where she was essentially faced with a moral choice back in Moscow. Mm. 
Most of her training was not in Moscow, but there were little bits of it where she went to Moscow. And she was faced with this moral choice that was kind of a life and death, not her life and death, but a life and death for somebody else. And she made what she thought was the right choice, what they, what they told her to do. They told her to do this and she did it. And then, then her training officer really chastised her and told her she had let someone die. This is, you know, if you follow orders that strictly, you're, you're being a bad person, which imagine what that would feel like to just feel like, look what you've done. Mm -hmm. Look what you've done. We don't want you to, to be that person. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, you know, you're, you're about to go over to this other country and we want you to be, you know, the right kind of person over there. That struggle about who to be where, who to be where, what being a good person is, essentially shaped Elizabeth. So we're, we're really looking back as we get to the end of the series, looking back at how she became, because Elizabeth for us, and it's complicated to say because we've seen all these horrible things she's done over the years, but we've never thought of her as a bad person. We've always thought of her as a person with a good heart mm -hmm. and a good soul who's trying to do the job she's supposed to do. So we're looking, it's almost like a little bit of an origin story of her soul or of her morality is probably the best way to put it. Wow. In this episode, we see Pastor Tim, our old friend, uh, now still ensconced in Buenos Aires. When Stan asks him if he knows anything about the Jenningses, he's silent. After all that agita, he's silent. <laughs> Why? I don't think that's a question for us to answer, really. I mean, I think, I think we each have our views, and I think the actor will have his view about why. But we think back to how that relationship built for them. And, you know, Pastor Tim became very close with them. And I think he he holds his sense of counsel very dearly. I think there is a, there are circumstances under which he would tell the truth, but this just didn't rise to that. The conversation between Oleg and Stan feels very sad somehow. They're both doing their duty. They both know the outcome sucks. That relationship between those two guys is so complicated. It's kind of saved the world. It's put careers in danger. It's it's not an end of the relationship that comes with, you know, soaring music. It feels sort of unsatisfactory for both of them in a way, not dramatically, but in terms of it's got a kind of leaden tragedy to it. I yeah. mean, he could, mostly I think because where they are, yeah. it's just an inevitable. It's not good. No, it, but it, but it was inevitable. It was inevitable, and it was it was not a place either of them wanted to get. And Stan went so far as to overtly tell Oleg not to take this risk because he didn't have diplomatic immunity. And it was too important to Oleg. He knew this was a possibility. He didn't want it to come to this. But now that it has, what can they do? We say goodbye to one of those not exactly beloved but familiar characters when Elizabeth kills Tatiana, preventing her from using a cyanide gun on Nestorenko. How did you decide that she would be the person who got the job that Elizabeth refused? I mean, there just weren't that many options. <laughs> yeah, they're running out of people at the Residentura. How many people do we know in the KGB at the Residentura? She's it. She's it. <laughs> but she was also a pretty good option. We've known her a long time. We like her. And you know what we do? Well, we've known someone a long time and we like them. You either send them to Moscow or, or you, you kill them. Eventually, they're going to get a bullet. <laughs> Look, she should be honored. It was from Elizabeth. Yeah. Highest honor of the Americans. Go. 
Claudia is very harsh with Elizabeth after everything Elizabeth has done for the motherland. I know, so harsh. I know. Claudia tells Elizabeth that she never really understood what she was fighting for. She wasn't as brave as Claudia's wartime comrades. Please explain Claudia's thinking to me. Uh, Well, Claudia is looking to save the Soviet Union that was and wants it to remain as it has been. And Elizabeth has always been a loyal soldier for that Soviet Union. And now she's coming to see something different. She's still a loyal communist socialist and believes in the USSR, but she's not going to take orders from traitors. And Claudia feels betrayed. So, you know, he says some pretty extreme shit. Was the book that Paige keeps mentioning to Elizabeth real? I mean, in the sense of based on one real text that you were referring to? There were a couple of books uh, by a guy named John Barron that had been out at that time that were essentially exposés about the KGB. They were interesting because, I I mean, I read those at the time and, and sort of loved them because they gave this portrait of the sort of both wily, incredibly effective, and quite evil KGB. It came out years later that these books had been financed and helped along and supplied with all sorts of information by the CIA. How fully accurate these books were, I, I think, is, is is a little bit questionable, although I'm not sure. I don't think they were entirely in, inaccurate either, but they, mm-hmm. they were designed as, as propaganda tools, but nobody knew that as, at the time. Right. And I think the notion was that Page had seen one of these books. The blow-up between Elizabeth and Page about the use of sex for ideological or national purposes seems very, very serious. I mean, we've talked about the role of sex before, but it seems that Page is mad because of the lie. I think another lie is pretty brutal, but this is a truth that she couldn't handle either way. So I think there was no getting around this for Elizabeth. The only way to get around it would have been to never have had the conversation. She should have killed Jackson. 609, the end is coming. Things are literally moving. They're moving. They're grabbing stuff. Do you guys have a go bag ready to be exfiltrated or to, to make your exit when uh, when you feel the uh, FBI at the door? I certainly keep one. Do you, Joel? I have kids. There isn't a go bag big <laughs> enough. <laughs> I wondered what Costa Ronin, who plays Oleg, thought about his character's fate. And fortunately, I had an opportunity to ask him. Oleg is captured. He came back and now, in a sense, his life is ruined. Um, He's made a big sacrifice. And then Stan offers him a way out, a way that he could return to home, to his wife, to his child, and he passes. Do you think he made the right decision? 100%. 100%. Because there is still honor that drives that man. You know, the character shines through when nobody's watching because they understand each other. But they also, at the same time, understand that Stan is there not because he wants to help. Stan is there because that's his job. It's not like Stan is trying to whisk him away and and sort of get him across the border and like, hey, listen, you've done the bad thing, but we're buddies, off you go. No, that's not going to happen. Stan is there to do his job, and they both understand each other, and they both understand that there is no way out for Oleg. He's got two options. Either betray everything he ever believed in, including his family, including his ideals, including his goals in life, and including that that hope that he was a part of building a better future. Or he can cooperate and, and give up everything and crumble and uh, be a coward and uh, probably cut a deal and get out of jail and 
live in the U.S. safely somewhere in you know in in the northern states somewhere and have a farm and you know we've met those people. We've met those people who cut those deals as part of the research for the show, and that's fine. Uh, that was their decision that they made, but that's that's not the decision that Oleg was going to make. It's not who he is, who he was. If I ask you if Oleg is one of the losers in this game of international intrigue. I mean, in some ways, he is. He's he's the one who's paid the price. He's he's had to sacrifice, but but he also has his integrity. Who's a loser? Uh, a, a loser is somebody who lost. Did Oleg lose? Absolutely not. Yes, he's in jail, but it doesn't mean that he lost because everything he ever worked for has survived him. Everything that he ever worked towards, towards the greater future, towards the better future for his family, towards the better country, towards a better relationship between the U.S. and Russia and the rest of the world, outlived him. It doesn't matter that he's in jail because everything that he lived for and worked for survived and was growing and was being popularized. And as we know, 89, the fall of the wall, 91, disintegration of the Soviet Union. So all those things that he was working towards came to life. Now, we can argue about the consequences of that, but that's another show and another conversation. But as far as their world and their beliefs and their ideals, he's absolutely one. When did you find out what was going to happen to the characters and what was going to happen to Oleg and everyone else? And, the, and how did you feel when you, when you kind of learned where it was all going? Well, first of all, I thought that last season was going to be my last one because we, we ended it so beautifully with that shot in Moscow with him on the bridge, like, you know, get, walking off the bridge, mixing with the crowd, becoming an average nobody, you know, the whole gray mass of the society, which was beautiful and perfect. But then the Jays, of course, surprised everybody else. And uh, I got a call in summer saying, hey, guess what? Uh, <laughs> you're up. Uh, and so, which was very cool. Because also what they did, they created a storyline that, because you think that being the last season, they would need to focus all their strength and wisdom on the main storyline. But what they managed to do is surprise everybody again and create a very, very, very interesting line for Oleg and his relationship with, with Stan and the family, and it, which is beautiful. And so uh, that was incredibly exciting for me to be back and, and, and continue to live this story and continue to live in this world when did I find out? Oh, yeah. So, and I thought, <laughs> I still, like, regardless, I'm going to die. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, I, I thought I had for the last six years. Um, and I thought, this is, the, this is, this cannot continue anymore. This is the last season. Surely I'm going to die. And uh, for some reason, I thought it's going to be like, eh, maybe like episode 10, uh, episode eight. I'm sorry. And normally what happens about like three or four episodes before you get a call. So, and I counted back, and I was like, that, that, you know, that brings me back to about like episode four, five, I'm like four, five, six, no call, what's going on? So I never got a call from the guys. And then um, we were filming, I think, episode six or seven, and we also shot one of the pickup scenes for episode one with Lianka, with um, uh, Elena. And there was a scene where she's crying, with the baby on her hands, and it's a silent scene. And I was like, hmm, I wonder why she's crying. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so I was like, that kind of opened it up for me. And uh, that was, you know, I haven't, ha I haven't gotten the call at that stage. 
but uh, Chris Long was directing it. So uh, I walk in and Chris knew exactly what I was thinking. Chris is, you know, he's amazing. So he's like, he looks at me and he's like, yep, he goes to jail. <laughs> he's like, I didn't even have to ask. So, which is very, very beautiful. I kind of, I did secretly hope for a more finite resolution. I did think that he was going to die. And secretly, I was, secretly, I was hoping for maybe, maybe a, a, a suicide because I think that would be more, more finite. And at the same time, a decision, a finite decision that he takes. He makes, nobody makes him make that decision. He makes that decision for the better of his family, for the honor of his family, because he dies in the line of duty, even though he's not like, like he says, I think in one of the episodes, he says to Philip, if I get caught, I'm done. Like, I don't have any immunity. I don't have any protection. I'm not going to have a, a, a hero star in the KGB. I'm, I'm going to die like an average person. So that's what I was hoping for. And it didn't happen. And now we know he goes to jail. If this episode left you with all kinds of questions about cyanide guns, never fear. I took my own queries to the show's spycraft expert, H. Keith Melton. Can you tell us what is a gas gun? Essentially, the the Russians developed a way to shoot prussic acid. And prussic acid is a vial of cyanide liquid that then has been vaporized. It becomes prussic acid. And it's fatal. And one of the things they developed in the 1950s and 60s was the idea of a gas gun. And if you wanted to assassinate someone, and let's say a Ukrainian dissident mm. who was preaching you know, anti-Soviet policy, but had somehow managed to, to escape to the West. And in one of the first examples, they knew the man was in his 70s. He went to the grocery store walked back into his apartment. He had to walk up some flights of stairs carrying groceries. They concealed and developed a small gun that was a vial of prussic acid, and behind it was a primer, a primer and a cartridge. And they could conceal it in a rolled-up newspaper. And when the individual was coming forward, climbing up the stairs, they'd meet them with a person going down the stairs, mm-hmm. and you'd put this rolled-up newspaper in their face, squeeze it. The person acts startled, Well, what they do is inhale, and they would do that just as the gas hit them. But what made it so special was it would appear that they had died of a heart attack, and they would think it was no another elderly pensioner going upstairs with the groceries had a heart attack. And at that time, a standard autopsy would not pick up death by cyanide. So if you are, for example, on the streets of Washington, D.C., and you don't want to start an international incident, but you want uh, to take someone out, that's a very good option if you can, if you believe that there's the space to, to get a, a newspaper. Yes, it was, it was very good targeted. In any time you could startle someone, mm-hmm. now it was potentially lethal because you had blowback of the gas. Oh, to the person doing it. Yes, so the the individual would take an antidote 30 minutes early, which made it much more difficult for the gas to be absorbed back into their bloodstream. And so they they would do this intentionally because blowback could be a problem. I asked Chris Long, who directed this episode, about the origins of Elizabeth's spectacular flashback scene involving a horse and a motorcycle. That, first of all, was going to go in 603. And then the Jays decided to save it, save these flashbacks until later on in the season to 609. And I actually pitched this one. They'd written it as a car accident 
it was actually more production friendly and easier to shoot a downed motorcyclist, a dead horse and a dead horse rider than it was to shoot a car accident, a car crash. Because if you think about it, you have to find two basically 1950s, 1960s Russian cars. Then you have to crash them or create an accident out of them. And that's very expensive. You know, these cars are enormously cherished, owned by collectors, treated with absolute kid gloves as they should be because they are really, really very rare. And I thought it was just way more Russianly tragic. And, and if you think about it, it could easily have happened. I mean, the way I staged it, it's like you see the bridge, the motorcyclist is coming around the corner too fast and you see that the horse and rider are coming around on probably on the wrong side of the road everybody saw each other too late and there was an accident and the motorcyclist hit the horse and came off and just the motorcycle is still alive and very mangled his bike is mangled and we just got the bike and laid it down and touched up with scenic paint to make it look scratched and as it had crashed and then we had basically a stuffed horse <laughs> which our guys on the set moved its legs slightly and visual effects guys take over and they add the breathing and the head movement. I really wanted this poor horse to be in the last throes of its existence as opposed to just dead, which I felt everyone would know how we cheated it. And then the sound sound work does the rest. And finally this week, I got a chance to chat with one of the actors I've most wanted to interview while making this podcast. Brandon J. Dearden, who has played Special Agent Dennis Adderholt since season three. So in episode 601, we see Adderholt for what I think might be the first time ever, (laughs) certainly for the first time in a long time, having fun. (laughs) He's not at work. He's not talking about work. And he's with his wife, his new son. Did that glimpse of a home life and a life outside of work feel as different to you as it did for me as a viewer? It did not for me personally because in doing the you know the backstory for Adderhold, he was once married that we know we learned that in the first season that we meet Adderhold. So it's not as if you know, he's a total recluse or into himself. And we also saw uh, glimpses of uh, what could be called mild flirtation with Martha in earlier seasons. So for me, it was always in my mind that Adderhold did have a life outside of of uh, of the office and did know how to let loose. But the, the wonderful thing I love about Adderholt and the way the Jays have, have crafted him as we learn him throughout the years is that he is a person that we find to be incredibly competent at his job and incredibly devoted to his responsibilities within the FBI and good. And I think particularly as one of the very few people of color in the FBI and in the, and in the uh, office uh, that comes with a certain responsibility of, of, of a certain uh, professionalism. So there's a sense that we don't always share what's going on outside of the office, but as we get to know his relationship with Stan and, uh, and it opens up and it's, I think it's beautiful the way it does it in, in season six, how uh, it's, it's like a flower that just opens up and yeah. Oh, right. There, there, there are things inside of that flower. Yeah. There's little Calvin. There's, yeah. there's his yeah. wife. You mentioned that Adderhall is, I think really the only recurring character of color on the show with a multi-season mm. arc. And he's an FBI man in yeah. the 80s at a time when there were a lot of lawsuits in the FBI, in the Bureau, right. about you know racial discrimination. Did you speak with former agents or do any other research um, when you were 
over the course of, of playing it, the role? You know, I read a lot about the culture of the FBI in the 80s. I was a, a kid in the 80s, personally. <laughs> and uh, I mean, the, the sense that I got, even with, with my father, who was uh, more in corporate America in the 80s, but uh, the sense that I got between he and his friends, uh, as I remember, right, mm-hmm. uh, who my father would have been Adderholt's age mm-hmm. around this time, uh, maybe slightly older, but around his age, was uh, just the this this dual consciousness, right? This this living in in two different worlds. Uh, so a lot of a lot of what I based Adderholt on was my father and his friends, who were very professional people. Mm-hmm but who cut loose on the weekends, right? But understood the fine line that they were walking in these glass-ceilinged places. Mm-hmm. And I knew my father, I remember visiting my father at work and just getting the sense that he had to be twice as good than anyone else mm-hmm. at his job. And also he had had to have the ability to uh, almost not hear things or live in a, a sound cloud mm-hmm. so it wouldn't necessarily affect his performance. Mm-hmm. There's a reservation that I remember my father having on his job. And sometimes it would spill over to home life, but it, it was just a very unique position to be in. Um, but learning again, re- doing readings about the, the culture of the FBI during that era, was, it's fascinating. Mm. It's absolutely fascinating under the, under the Reagan administration. That's really fascinating. And it was interesting, too, that at that dinner in 601 when he's over at Dance, Stan's the house. Beamons. Thank you. Yeah, with, with the, the Jenningses and, and Paige is being a little radical. Right. And we learn that Adderholt's wife is no fan of Robert Bork. And it's interesting to get that <laughs> little bit of expression. So it's kind of what you're talking about, right? That I wouldn't expect Dennis to say that, even if he felt it. Well, you can't. Yeah. I mean, you can't. You know, the FBI is, is supposed to be apolitical. It's, it's really interesting. I had an uncle in, in Houston, Texas, where I'm from. Mm-hmm. And my uncle was uh, a Texas Ranger. He was the sixth black Texas Ranger in the history of the Texas Rangers. Mm-hmm. And it was a big deal when, when he was promoted to Texas Ranger, which is the highest law enforcement position in the state of Texas. And one of his responsibilities, he drove uh, when, when President Bush, would, uh, the, the second, would come into town, he was responsible. He was then, gov- actually, he was governor first, and so my mm-hmm. uncle was a ranger under, uh, while he was governor, he would drive him around when they came to, you know, his district in mm-hmm. Texas. That was his responsibility. And, uh, and I never knew how my uncle felt politically about George W. Bush until years later, mm. two years later. And so I think there is a certain aspect of that with, with Adderholt and in the scene. And you, you don't know his political allegiance, but you certainly don't question his, his love of country and yeah. sense of duty. You know, he came into this partnership with Stan after Stan had lost a partner. Right. Very, you know, in, Amador. In a, mm-hmm. yeah, in a very sort of dramatic and, 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 damaging way to you know it really affected Stan Beeman and but now this partnership is very established except that Stan has kind of escaped it yes Stan seems so happy to be in this new position he's just chasing corrupt politicians instead of yeah. these killer spies yeah. he's very resistant whenever Adderholt wants to get him to talk about the one case that he's still right. working right do you think that that Adderholt would be kind of resentful of Stan's escape or wondering yeah. why he's left this this really great... No, I, I, I don't think Adderholt is, is wondering at all uh. why Stan wanted to, to get out of the, uh, the counterintelligence division. Uh, I think what our writers have shown 
brilliantly over five the first five seasons is the toll that it takes the emotional toll the, the toll with family the personal relationships i mean not only did stan lose amador but he lost gad and even martha that betrayal so the when you're dealing with espionage i mean just the toll and what i love about this show is that we see the human consequences, right? The very real human emotions that are tied up in this type of work. Felt like around episode seven of this season, mm-hmm. Adderholt's main kind of emotion is frustration. He's frustrated with Sophia and Gennady. He's a little bit frustrated with Stan. He's frustrated that yeah. these leads that they're getting, you know, they're, they're working hard. They're, now they've got some database stuff. They can, you know, they're getting yes. these new tools, but it's kind of not working out. As an actor, is frustration a hard emotion to work with? Well, I think as an actor, uh, the word frustration is it's pretty useless to me as an actor, right? Uh, frustration is a byproduct of not getting what you want. So what's useful to me as an actor is what it is that I really want and what are, what's stopping me from getting those things. We're on this case in, in counterintelligence, and we want to put the pieces of the puzzle together. We want to get a return of, on our investment. We want to make advances to to secure national security interests, right? And it's not happening. So we're we're wasting time, energy, resources on on dead end pursuits. That's frustrating because I'm not getting what I want. So it's more of a byproduct. So I can't act frustration, but I can act. I want this. I want this. I want this. And Daggummit, every turn I'm getting stopped. Thanks to Joe Weisberg, Joel Fields, Costa Ronin, Brandon J. Dearden, H. Keith Melton, and Chris Long. Thanks also to Daniel Schrader for recording assistance and to the Americans Sarah Nolan for organizational help. Please join us next week when we'll be discussing the series finale, episode 610 Start, with some very, very special guests. I'm June Thomas. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.